Today's episode of Home Row is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word, and it also inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is equally suited for serious study or for sharing with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. I'm I'm writing. You know how to write. Without the without the without the writing, you have nothing. I'm writing. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Home Row. And today I'm so excited to have Andrew Peterson on the show. Andrew is a well-known singer, songwriter, lover of Rich Mullins and so many other things. Uh, Andrew, how are you doing, man? (laughs) Hey, man, I'm doing good. Thank you. So for the people out there who maybe don't know who you are, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I am married to Jamie. This year we're we're all getting close to our 25th wedding anniversary and have three kids who are 20, 19, and 16, all about to move up a year because they're all fall babies. Um, and uh, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, been here for like 22 years now, and I'm a singer, songwriter, uh, author, and just kind of uh, am the founder of a nonprofit called The Rabbit Room and uh, just kind of just do stuff. Um and I like, uh, I don't watch sports, but if I did, it would be baseball. Okay. That's all right. Which, uh, which team would you pull for? <laughs> I would pull for if the you Cubs. Okay, I was why born the Cubs? in Illinois. Okay. I was born in Illinois and lived there till I was seven. And we lived closer to St. Louis than Chicago. And, uh, the Cubs were like, you know, notoriously bad even then. And, uh, and everybody in our town was a Cardinals fan cause those are the games we would go to. But I was this little, little, uh, seven year old boy. I was the only one in the family with a Cubs hat and just felt sorry for him. I've always been like an <laughs> underdog guy. So, <laughs> and like the funny thing is, I don't know if you're an Enneagram person, but nah, like I'm nah. learning about learning about like the four on the Enneagram, which is the number that I, I think I identify with in like the, uh, the uh they tend to be like uh cups fans like think of <laughs> yeah kind of like they're, they're like I, i'm the one who if everybody's doing this i'm gonna be over here doing this okay which it's so funny to see see myself as a seven-year-old like beginning to uh <laughs> live that kind of stuff out yeah so when so is it the four that if there's if other people are zigging they're zagging yeah, that's kind of the thing. Okay. And the irony is the four and sorry to get like out of, we don't have to go anywhere. No, why not? Uh, uh but the uh the irony is like the the four is like wh- the thing that made me go, ooh, yeah, that's that's the thing that uh resonates with me is when I read about how like the four on the Enneagram, when they walk into a room, your assumption is ev- you are missing an essential element that everybody else has. <laughs> That like everybody is in on some secret, but you were cut off from it. And so you're longing to belong, but you're afraid that you never will. So you protect yourself by being unique. Goodness. Isn't that crazy? So when I read that, I was just like, oh my word, that just described my whole high school and college and singer songwriter life. Like so much of my life I've spent doing that, like self, like aching to be, be like connect with people, but also being afraid that it won't happen. So it's like, I'm going to be the Cubs fan. I'll be over here doing my thing. It's safer. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. I I have not taken the Enneagram. I'm not opposed to Uh, it at all. Yeah. But. I don't know why I haven't. So what, what number is the person who hasn't taken it? 
<laughs> is I don't know. I used to joking with see the problem with the Enneagram like is that it's happening right now is that once people start talking about it, it's so interesting that you'll spend the next five hours of your life talking about it. Right. And so on tour, uh, the Christmas tour specifically, there's a couple of people on the tour who are like actual actually have counseling degrees who you know, resonated with the, this, they found the Enneagram helpful. Okay. And as soon as they'd start talking about it, I would be like, Oh my word, here You're we right. go. We were talking about Spielberg and now we're just going to be talking about our yeah. feelings. <laughs> and so I would, I would kind of roll my eyes and like go to bed. And, uh, and I, so the joke was I'm, I'm whatever number hates the Enneagram. And they would say, uh, the four, <laughs> because that was a case in point. It was like, everybody was talking about this thing and I needed to be like, I'll be over here. And so anyway, all that to say, I don't know. I think people can get carried away with it, but I also have found it to be very helpful. Like I know for my family and I, like my daughter, uh, like has, uh, the boys are a little, more, little easier to, to, uh, you know, they're dudes, they're like bros and I could just kind of talk to them. But right. the sky was this like intricate jewel that my wife had to explain to me. And it turns out she's part of the reason she's so, uh, volatile, um, and I mean that in the best way, like Sky's just like this passion, passion, passion. Yeah. And, um, part of it is because she's so much like me, like she's very driven and she's musical, she's emotional. She feels things really deeply and strongly, you know, and, and my wife is like, she's just a 16 year old girl version of you, you know that, yeah. right? And so, so the Enneagram was a way of helping my daughter and I understand each other too. You know, it was like, Interesting. um, objectifying what's going on right now so we can look at it from the outside and be like, right. oh, I bet you're feeling this because of this. And so, I don't know. I, I think it's worth at least looking into. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to check it out. Um, and I know other people that do it and love it and have, have benefited from it. But of course, like everything, like people can get crazy with all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. One of the things, Ian Cron is a guy who wrote a book called The Road Back to You, which I thought was helpful. And he, I heard him say one time, um, he's like, all models are wrong. Like if you're talking about economic models, like, the trickle down economics, blah, blah, blah. He's like, all of them are wrong. The thing's way too complex to, to ha find a model to understand something that complex. He said, but some models are more helpful than others. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, the Enneagram is a model that is wrong, but it tends to be helpful. And in a way that sometimes like the Myers-Briggs or the whatever, he was like, so, you know, take it for what it's worth. It's just like, this may be helpful. And if it's not, it's not, but it's a way of, a way of bringing into like, 2% more focus the way you were wired, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, anyway, huh. I like it. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So when, so when you're not, uh, talking about the Enneagram and you're not, <laughs> uh, writing, writing books or, or writing songs, um, uh, what's something that, uh, that you do for fun out there? Well, I, I, we live, we live in Nashville, just South of the city and, um, in still in, in Nashville, in the County. Um, but the, we live in what I jokingly say, Nashville with cows, so it's Nashville's growing uh, too fast right now, but there are still little pockets of the county where you can you can pass a barn and see some sheep in a field. And so we about twelve years ago happened upon this little pocket of Davidson County and and uh, and snagged a little bit of property. So um, when I moved here, it was partly because of uh, because of having read a Wendell Berry book. Yeah, I love how you talk she about it in uh, in Adorning the Dark. It was so great. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And so the, uh, the, so we ended up here because of that, because of him basically, but almost immediately just woke me up to like, um, this 
deep connection to the land. So you asked me what I'm doing. I'm sitting in the chapter house right now, my, my little office, and right outside the chapter house, there was a slope that kind of like sloped up to where our house is. And uh, I had, I guess last year, like found some old stones and dug, dug steps right. into the, into the slope. And, uh, and they tore down the house next door to us. And there were all of these old, old foundation stones that were in a big pile that I was able to pillage. And so I built about a 60 foot retaining wall last Whoa. week and, uh, and dry stack stone wall with a bench in it. So that's what I do for fun. So yeah. like I spend a lot of time like in airports or in a car or in a tour bus or staring at a computer. And so any chance I get to be home and to get my hands dirty and, and just build something or plant something, that's kind of what I do. Yeah. I, I thought you might go that route. I didn't know. Did you, do you have bees? I do. You do you yeah. have bees? That's right. <laughs> I remember you, I couldn't, I, in the book, I think you talk about getting yeah, syrup. Yeah, I think I mentioned it. Yeah. I, yeah, I talk about the syrup and I mentioned the bees in passing. Okay. I've written at length about the bees elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I knew there was something, I was like, I think there's something with Andrew Peterson and bees that's coming to my mind. Yeah. Man, if you get me started on bees, we'll talk about it longer than the Enneagram. So be careful. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do a, another episode. Uh, we'll start a bee podcast <laughs> somewhere else. But I knew, I, f- I figured it might go to the stone wall because I remember seeing the pictures you posted on social media of getting the oh, arch. Yeah. And I yeah. think and I think Russell Moore also posted about the arch, like seeing it one yeah. time when he was out there. Love, yeah, he, love Russ. That's so fun. He's he's a good one, man. I love that guy. Yeah, um, yeah. he's a good dude. But uh, yeah, man, it has just been so, it's it's fascinating to me. Like there, I talk about this, I think, in the, in the like uh, afterward of the book, but the uh, one of the little, you know, nuts and bolts kind of, um, bits of writing advice, um, I give in the book is about, was from a guy named Arthur Boers, B-O-E-R-S, wrote a book called Living Into Focus. And it was about, um, in a, in an age of technology where like our attention is being harvested by, you know, data gathering and all this kind of business. We're spending so much time like indoors and in front of screens. He's like, he's like one of the ways to fight back at that is to cultivate a, a focal practice. And he, de- he defines a f- focal practice loosely as something that requires discipline, um, or study. It connects you with other people and it connects you with God. And so, um, like God through his creation. And yeah. so when, when he was talking about that, I remember thinking, Oh, that's why I love bees is because it's, it's something that I had to learn, like like a, a craft that I had to learn, but it also connected me with like this community of beekeepers, and it connects me with my neighbors because they like I get to drop off honey at their house, and it also fills me with wonder because it's this beautiful, like like God speaks to us through His creation. So so, drawing getting close to this really fascinating little aspect of the way He made the world has led me to worship and understanding his mind, you know, that tiny bit much better. And so I, I, I don't know, like, I, I just think that everybody should find something, whether it's hiking or biking or crocheting, whatever it may be, but like finding something that gets you away from a computer screen or a TV screen right. that gets you ideally gets you outdoors. Like it just does wonders for your mental health, like, um, and spiritual health, but also like just from a very practical level, like I'm, I'm, there's no doubt in my mind that I'm, my writing was improved by learning how to build a dry stack stone wall, Mm. you know, in ways that I may not be able to articulate. I just am confident that that's the, that's the case. Yeah. That and the muscles, the muscles that come with (laughs) it. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, I mean, you've written so much stuff, and we could talk for hours about songwriting, um, nonfiction writing now, as you have uh, Adorning the Dark coming out, and also fiction writing with the Wingfeather Saga. But let's let's start kind of, I guess, at the beginning of all of that. How did you become a writer of, of books. So let's, let's maybe skip some of the songwriting that we can, because I know most of my listeners, they're, they're probably not songwriters. And a lot of them are nonfiction, fiction writers. So obviously there'll be some bleed over, but you go from writing so many great songs and records for, for so many people. And then the wing feather saga comes about. So how did you become a writer of books? Well, uh, I, the, I, I wanted to be, a an author before I wanted to be a songwriter. Like when I was, when I was in school, um, I was way into comics and movies and, um, and like fantasy novels, that kind of stuff. I was just as nerdy as you could imagine. And, uh, and then picked up the guitar mainly because, you know, it was a good way to impress girls and, uh, and then fell in love with music and, you know, that became a kind of a calling, but, uh, but I never abandoned that love of books and story and always thought in the back of my mind, I really want to know what it's like to write a novel. And like many people had a lot of false starts over the years, starting in high school. Um, and I think it was after my third record, um, came out, uh, love and thunder was when I finally, my kids were old enough for me to read the Narnia books to them. And so I read those books to them and it just reawakened that mm. mad desire to know what it's like to write a fantasy novel. So I talked to my wife and was like, you know, that book I'm always talking about writing, I'm, I'm tired of talking about it. I'm really, really, really going to do it this time. And so, um, I said, so that means that I'm not going to watch lost with you at night. I'm going to use that <laughs> hour. <laughs> I'm going to use that hour to work on the story. And so the, the cool thing was I found like, I actually was able to finish this time um, the, the first book, the first draft of the first book with a lot of help. Like my brother is a, is a playwright and a novelist and, um, is way, a way better writer than I am. And I, but at the time he hadn't finished his first book yet. So he had a brother, like I dropped the gauntlet and I was like, let's see who can finish their book. The first be the first person to finish a book. And so he actually finished his book first, but I got published first. So I, I like to think that I, yeah, won. Oh yeah, you um, won. but the, uh, but, but the, the other side of that is I really only got published because I, I was already a songwriter, <laughs> so I cheated, but, um, anyway, but, but I had a lot of help along the way, but it's in, in hindsight, I like, I've looked back and been like, uh, I think the reason I was able to finish, uh, finish the first book was because I had learned something about the creative process from songwriting and making records. Like there were certain patterns of the, you know, the initial passion that you feel when you get a new idea, like, Ooh, here's a song I want to write. And then of course you hit the wall and you think this song is the worst thing ever. I give up. And then you start another song and, and you know, records are that way. Like you start a record and you're nervous and then you, you, you make some headway and then you hit a wall and you go, you show up at the studio and everybody's kind of like, um, thinking in their heads, this is never going to work. And then one day it does. One day everybody looks at each other and they're like, oh, it's starting to sound like a record now. And so I, I, when I sat down to write the first Wing Feather Saga book, I started with a big idea and got so far into it and hit the wall. And I was like, oh, I've been here before. Like, this doesn't mean to quit. This means you, you keep fighting. And, and, uh, so I think that cross disciplinary thing, like there were things that I had to, I had to learn from, uh, from 
kind of just like the writing life as a songwriter that that helped me kind of blow the the sail fill the sails of the, right. the writing boat and blow it across to the other shore so uh anyway that that's how it started and um i almost immediately just fell in love with it like uh it scratched the same itch that songwriting did yeah then then now i mean you've made the the jump from that from writing fiction now into nonfiction. So your first nonfiction book, Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community, Calling, and the Mystery of Making. This is an outstanding book, and which I knew it was going to be. It was going to be a blast to read as someone who, who writes books and, and articles and stuff like that. And I write sermons every week. Uh, I took this to the beach with us uh, this summer for family vacation. Uh, I got an advanced copy, and it's all beat up and tattered. So it looks like I really like oh. devoured this book. Thank you, um, man. And I love, so what we're just talking about, there's a analogy you draw out, um, on page 74 about the difference between songwriting and, um, book writing. And uh-huh. it's from Rich Mullins where he says that songwriting is like going fishing. Sometimes you sit by the pond all day and never catch a thing, but sometimes you snag something beautiful. The point is you never know unless you go to the pond and wait. And then you talk about how the analogy, like you think it's so right. Like you just go, you go write the song, you see what happens. So then you say, if songwriting is about patience, writing a book is about endurance. You don't really need that flash of inspiration to write a book. In fact, the whole process is about as mundane as you can imagine. Churning out pages made out of paragraphs, made out of sentences, made out of words. If inspiration comes, you don't really know it until the book is finished. And not only that, the satisfaction of sharing it with someone is deferred for months, if not years. Man, that's so stinking true. <laughs> have you have you written uh, nonfiction? Have. Have you, yeah, yeah, I man. Have. It is. There's a lot more opportunity to question your sanity when you're when you're fighting your way through a book that nobody's read yet. You know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, then, it's, it's, and then my wife hard. hasn't read them yet. I have two. You know, <laughs> then my own spouse hasn't read them. I'm like, oh man, yep. these are probably terrible. <laughs> yeah, you you learn to not ask your friends if they've read your book. That's right. Um, because they just, they, they, I think I say in the book that the shuffling of feet is unbearable. Um, <laughs> it's so the, true. Uh, but you know, but it's also like, if you think of it as, uh, even if nobody else, like you're writing it with the, the wild hope that it's going to move somebody, that it's going to be helpful to somebody. But even if it doesn't, it's not wasted time. You know what I mean? Right. Like the, the, the very act of writing and organizing your thoughts in that way and fighting your way through from the beginning of something to the end of something is a refining process no matter what. Um, I remember my brother, uh, uh, he, <laughs> this drove me crazy, but he, he decided for his new year's resolution one year that he wanted to learn poetry. So he bought a fancy leather journal and, and was committed to writing at least a poem a day in it. And, uh, he went on summer vacation to the beach, um, which meant that he was, you know, 150 poems into this thing probably it was in June and he lost his journal oh, at the beach. No. And I was like, Oh my word, you lost 150 journal, like poems that you wrote. And he shrugged. He literally was like, meh, it doesn't matter. It was just, it was an exercise. So it was like, none of that was wasted. Like the poems weren't the point. The discipline was the point and the the work and the commitment and wrestling with words, like none of that part was lost, you know, mm-hmm. um, which it's still a little maddening to me yeah. that the poems were lost. But the thing is like, even if not another soul read your book, um, there's something that's happening inside you in the process, um, that is valuable, you know, a um, publisher might be upset, but I, I benefit <laughs> from it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. 
Yeah, I mean, I love that quote so much uh, that I just read. So when you think about it, if someone comes to you, which, you know, I get this question a lot from, one, from writing and from having a writing podcast. But when people, if people come to you, I bet you get it all the time. Um, I want to start writing. What should I do? What, what do you tell them? Well, my, one of the things that I've started saying lately is, is asking them um, what they need to give up. Like if you, if you, if you've got to feel like you've got a book in you, but you've just can't find the time or the motivation to write it. Like my question is like, okay, then, uh, what do you need to rearrange about your life? That's going to make room for this thing. Like chances are you're going to have to give up watching lost at night or you're going to have to get up an hour earlier or like a lot of times it's just, we're, we're not willing to, to, uh, make the space. Like you, you just do have the time. Everybody does. I heard Anne Lamott one time, and I think I mentioned this in the book. She was, I was at a thing she spoke at, um, last year, year before. And she said something about how she was like, here's the best advice I can give you. If you're one of those people who just is struggling to finish your first book, um, stop not doing that. Right. <laughs> she said, what, just stop not writing your book. Like just write it. Stop not writing it. She was like, if you want to know, want excuses, I, I was a drug addict and an alcoholic and had a, like, uh, my, uh, a baby and, and no husband when I wrote my first novel. So she was like, you have no excuse. Yep. Like th- that's the thing, like figure out what you need to do. What is the thing that you, you need to shift around in your life to make room for the fact that you're going to take this seriously? Cause write, like writing is about finishing as you know, like the, it's like the book is not a book until you've gotten to the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's just the terrible first draft, like you've got like until you know what it's like to start at a and cross that finish line and write the end and stand back and look at a pile of paper that is a complete book. Even if it's terrible, a terrible first draft, you, you, you can't really call yourself a writer or an author because you just, until you finished, you, you don't know, you know, you, you know what I mean? Like, oh, the, yeah. the, cause the part of the part of writing that is, is the most gratifying, but what actually makes the writing, um, uh, really valuable. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but they, uh, is the revision, you know, taking yeah, this editing process, lump yeah. of clay and then revising it and editing it. That's so fun. It's scary to people at first, but it, it, after a while you start to realize, like, Oh, this is the fun part. This is the downhill skiing part. Um, uh, the first draft is climbing the mountain. Um, and so, so that's, that's my thing is just like, you just have to finish it. You have to stop not doing it. Yeah, that's good. I, I think Stephen King said this. I, you know, I've not read any other Stephen King book other than his book on writing. It's a great book, which feels yeah. bizarre. Like I haven't read it. So like, maybe I should read his other stuff too. Uh, it's okay. Yeah. I read a ton of it in high school and thought it was great. And there are some great things about his books, but I went back as an adult with a, um, and it, it is, it's just, it's just too much, man. Right. I just think that it's, to, but on writing is, is, is yeah. worth it. I think, I, I think yeah. he says on, in on writing that the secret to, you know, finishing a book or being a writer is butt glue. Oh, that, interesting. That yeah. you just glue yourself to the chair and yep. you, you finish and you, yeah. you just got to do it. And that's why the, the kind of the subtitle of the show that of home row is just keep writing. Like, yeah, that's all you can do, even if it's just another sentence or another paragraph or, and, you know, another 20 pages, just yeah. sit down and do yeah. it. And I wonder if you've ever experienced this, the the feeling of, um, you know, you've got your ideally a routine. Like when I was, when I'm in a book, like I try to, to have like a, a chunk of time in the morning that's the same every day. Um, 
that you're going to work on it. Yeah. We don't always have that luxury, but the, the, the days when I'm like, man, this is flowing. I'm, I'm doing so good. The next day I'll read it and be like, this is terrible. Oh, it's boy. florid and, and I've got to edit it all down. But the days when it was like the most mundane where it felt like I'm just stringing boring sentences together. I'm just telling about what's happening. I don't feel inspired right now. Those are the days that I look back the next day and go, Hey, it's not bad. Right. Have yeah, you felt the, that before? Oh, yeah. And then the comments you get either from your editor or whatever, the stuff that you think is gold, and uh-huh. you're just like, man, this is this is like Midas touch all over this. <laughs> and you send it to them, they're like, this is like fool's gold. Get like rid way of this. over the top. This whole oh, yeah. paragraph, like this, all of it, you just got to start over. You're like, are you yep. kidding me? It's so true. Yeah. I'm actually going through a thing right now. Uh, we're re-releasing the Wing Feather Saga books. Um, Random House is like doing a new edition in hardback this, yeah, so this time cool. so so excited about because they're kind of giving them their first like real real push um next spring and uh so it's like this wonderful chance to go back and tweak some things because the first books are the weaker you know i the only way to get better at writing is to write and so you know when when i give when people buy the stack of all four wing feather saga books i always tell them like don't give up on me like <laughs> if you don't like book 1 please keep reading like it gets better and um so i was like oh i so i emailed my uh this uh woman named Laura who runs moderates the wing feather saga website and she's this um she's a hebrew scholar and like brilliant librarian Amazing. lady who who is uh super passionate about my books. And so I emailed her. I was like, Hey, do you have a, like a document where you've kept track of like the typos that made it through and any edits or whatever. And so she went to the forum and asked them, Hey, Andrew's got a chance to like tweak some things in the books. Anybody notice any inconsistencies? And man, oh my goodness! like she sent like this, this like Google doc of like pages of sentences that she kind of went a little farther than I expected her to go. And I was like, ooh, that kind of stings a little bit. Yeah, but, so it had but, to be a little uh, discouraging for a second. I was, yeah. yeah, I was mainly interested in typos, but I guess if you're going to go to sentence level. And so the amazing thing was, like, I went through and there were some legitimate, like, continuity problems. You know, dates were wrong. And, mm. and uh, you know, there were a couple of scenes that, like, weren't built quite right that, like, you don't notice when you're in the thick of it. But I was like, man, if I've got a chance to fix it, I'm, I'm going to do it. And uh, what I noticed when I was going through is that the best solution to most of the little problems was deletion. Like yeah. most of the problems were fixed. If I, I was like, actually, that that clause doesn't even help the sentence. Like, let's just get rid of it and tighten it all up and make it better. Which reminds me, do you remember in uh, River Runs Through It, um, the movie where – did you ever see that movie? Man, a River Runs if Through I have, it? it's been a long time. I don't remember. There's this great scene where the dad is teaching the younger kids to write. And he, he gives them an assignment. And the kid walks up to the dad and hands him the paper. And the dad reads it. And the dad says, half as long. And he gives mm-hmm. it back to the kid. And the kid goes back and he writes it, rewrites it and gives it to his dad. And he says again, half as long. So the dad keeps telling the kid, like, I'm not interested in how many pages you can fill. I'm interested in economy of language. How do how do you convey this stuff like with clarity and beauty? Yeah. And so the half as long thing I kept thinking about like you know in the editing process is like so satisfying to highlight a whole paragraph of of a book that you're working on and just delete it and watch how the whole thing like gets yeah. stronger. It's so true. It um, it is trimming the fat. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's hard to express to somebody who hasn't experienced it before, but like, man, what a gift. Anytime my editor 
like when I was reading, going through her edits, if there was a, even a single page that didn't have a, a word comment bubble in the corner, in the side, you know, right. I thought my assumption was that she fell asleep at the wheel. <laughs> um, I was like, it can't be that I've written a single page that didn't need editing. Right. Like the problem is you weren't paying attention. So, <laughs> so go back and find something wrong because after a while, like it's such a wonderful feeling to see that community and outside input actually just makes yeah. everything you're doing better. Yeah. It takes humility and trust of your editor to know that. Um, like I mm. just, and this is, this is different for if you're writing fiction or nonfiction, but since I only write nonfiction, um, I had a book on, on Calvinism come out this past year called humble Calvinism, try to be gracious with this stuff, which, which can often be so contentious. Yeah. And I, you know, deleted tons of stuff out all the time. And so a secret that I tell, uh, nonfiction writers is when you delete chunks, pages, paragraphs, don't just send them out into the ether, like save that bad boy on another folder, uh. another file. So then when it's time, you know, you're writing a promo post somewhere or you're writing a newsletter. Like I got asked to write an article for desiring God. I was like, I've already got 600, 700 words on this one topic wow. saved. I'm already like, I'm almost done. And so dude, that's, that's smart. Yeah, delete it and save it. And then you can, so now we can split the royalties on this, you know, save the <laughs> edits to Wing Feather. Then you can release well, that's right. the B-sides of the books. <laughs> All the crappy little sections. That's right, yeah. that's right. Isn't that, um, what, uh, isn't that what J.K. Rowling did with the uh, Tales of Beetle the Bard or something? I don't know. It Kind of, kind yeah. of, yeah. yeah. Um, that, that's good advice, though, seriously. I, it's good enough. Because writing fiction was very different. Like I, I, it was a lot, it, like I have, I'm far more nervous about this book coming out than the wing feather stuff. Like, uh, you feel, yeah, I feel a lot more exposed. Like there's no, there's no like barrier of fiction between me and the book. Like you are very personal in the book. Yeah. It's a little scary. Yeah. It's man. It's a great read. So encouraging. Like you, I know people are going to go and pick it up, especially, you know, fans of the rabbit room and, and, and you and your, all your writing and your songs, but man, you do give a lot. It was just so much fun to learn, um, uh-huh. about you and Cademan's, um, <laughs> and, and how you got on the tour with them and then how you left a, a bag of money somewhere that I'll let listeners yeah. go and, and, and find out about, but man, it's, it is kind of a autobiographical, you know, memoir yeah. on writing and, and creativity. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you read it. So how did the idea for the, for the book come about? Well, it started because I was, um, I know you'd been tinkering with it for a while. Yeah. It was kind of like, uh, the, the genesis of the idea was because I was in the studio a few records ago and was, um, just didn't, didn't quite know what the songs were supposed to be about yet. Didn't like my writing. I don't usually write songs until it's time to make a record. Um, because uh, I'm just doing other stuff and they're kind of germinating. Um, so I went into the studio this time and only had a couple songs. And I thought, well, one of the ways that maybe I'll, I'll get the juices going by uh, documenting, by just kind of like, uh, um, what is it called? Um, is it a tra- stream of consciousness? Kind of mm-hmm. just documenting what's going on in my mind while I'm trying to write the songs for this album. Uh, because at least it was something, it was writing something, it was filling the page, even if it wasn't songs, it was production, producing something. And so, uh, after about a year, I looked back at that journal of, of my thoughts and I was like, I wonder if this would be helpful to somebody else to know what's going on inside 
the brain of somebody who's trying to make something in real time. And so that kind of like one thing led to the other. And I was, I was like, maybe like I, I didn't want to write a book that was just nuts and bolts, practical advice on songwriting. I thought just cause those books ha- haven't been terribly helpful to me. Yeah. It, it was the ones that were the, the books about principles and, and, uh, the writing life. And, and it was anecdotal stuff tends to help me more than nuts and bolts both stuff. So I, that, that kind of led me to just going, well, maybe if I just tell my story and tell about the few things I've learned along the way, it could be, um, actually stand a chance to help somebody. Cause what I want to do is, is, you know, the book isn't ideally just for songwriters or novel writers. It's like one of the theses of the book is that like everybody is creative. Mm -hmm. Everybody, we're, we're all carrying around this beautiful gift that the Lord has given us to give to the world, which is, um, you know, uh, imaging things like speaking into being, uh, things that we're coming up with. And so, so if I can fan that flame in anybody, whether they're a painter or a, or a homemaker or a, an accountant, um, Jenna shift, shift the paradigm just a little bit to help them see their lives as an opportunity to, um, uh, love their neighbor, um, with their gifting, whatever that gifting may be, then that's what I want the book to do. Yeah. That's so good, man. And I, I think you achieved it. I, it was so encouraging to read and inspiring oh, like, to, to get up there and get, get to work since I know you talk about, I think a little bit in the book of how kind of the phrase of saying, well, I'm a creative and that, that yeah. becomes like this weird badge of honor that people get, but that really we all are. If we're, if we believe in the Imago Dei, then this is just a part of us being made in God's image. And what it means to be human is yeah. we're creatives. Um, so I, I just love that emphasis. And it got me thinking about, you know, now you, you write this book after, after writing other books and writing so many songs and in the process of, of doing more, if you could go back and tell yourself, um, as you're, you know, pouring over comic books in, in high school, um, maybe, did you play Dungeons and Dragons? Did you talk about that too? It's funny. I, I don't, I'm not, um, I never did. I don't even know what I it is or how quite- to do it. <laughs> I was way into the drawings and the kind of the world of it, but you have to know how to do math and be like Dungeons and Dragons is like fantasy football for nerds. So you have to be like a little bit into not just the storytelling, but like numbers and dice rolls. And yeah, the, it's, it. I would just fall asleep as soon as that yeah. happened. So yeah. I would hang out with my friends while they were playing and I would just be in the background drawing pictures. Yeah. I can't even calculate <laughs> the thing. tip at a restaurant. Yeah, and I just don't do that. I'm a words guy. The only numbers I deal with are verse numbers in the Bible. Like that's, that's, funny. that's yeah. it. So, My wife and I even have a hard time figuring out the time change. Like we're like, <laughs> wait, tomorrow is it early or is it? Are we going to be more sleeper? And we just give up and say, well, so we'll just see tomorrow. Yeah, I'll just get there when I get there. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if I could give advice to that kid, is that what yeah. you're going to ask? Yeah. If you could go back, you know, all the stuff you've learned about creativity, what would you go back and tell your your younger self? Well, I think. If it was the if it was high school, Andrew, I would tell him um, that that there's a place there there's a seat at the table in the kingdom of God for you. Um, I, I think that I, I assumed because you know in the 80s, early 90s um, in the South in like an evangelical church, there wasn't much conversation like we're having right now. Yeah, like about the idea that God is speaking through stories and through our creativity and that there's this broad be- like the, in the liturgy it says you know heaven heaven and earth are full of your glory this idea that all of heaven and earth are just kind of brimming over with god's glory not just through cre- his creation but specifically through the creations of his creation 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that like that that it would have changed the way that I saw my um, the possibilities um, for Christianity because I I just assumed Christianity was this thing that that had no bearing on whatever was happening inside of me when I watched E.T. or right. drew a a dragon and felt this like gl- little glimmer of of longing or wonder or you know, that goosebumpy feeling that you got when you were a kid when like every now and then you would you would feel this tug toward adventure or calling or whatever it may be. And, and it was like for me at least, movies and comics and stories were were the place that I found those things the most often. And what would have surprised me, I think, is if older Andrew had gone back in time and said, Hey, guess what? Those things are leading you to Jesus. Like mm-hmm. Jesus is actually calling you. He's the, he is the only place that you'll, you'll find like the truest, purest, most satisfying version of that thing that you're looking for. And, uh, that would have shocked me. And so yeah. the fact that, you know, I could one day grow up to, to play music or, you know, be involved in trying to make a movie or the writing fantasy novels all within the, underneath the umbrella of a calling from the, the Lord on my life, it would have blown my mind. I couldn't have imagined it. Yeah. Um, and then you didn't ask for this part, but if you had then asked college and post-college, Andrew, what advice, like what advice I would give him, I would just tell him, don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> like, uh, like it's, it's going to be okay. Like, like, uh, you don't have to be everything. And, and, uh, you, you know, I, I have a tendency to, to be pretty, um, self-loathing comes pretty naturally to me. And yeah, so me I have, uh, learned over the years that like, I think the enemy is most pleased when I'm angriest at myself, you know? Right. And so, uh, highlighting the verses about there being no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, that, that's where I would go mm-hmm. with the, the older Andrew was like, uh, just because I feel like I've wasted. I, I had a friend who told me one time that worry is a waste of imagination. Um, and so I would say the same thing about self-loathing is like if you're just nurturing all those voices, then you're you're using this beautiful gift for something that is kind of a, a waste of time. Then instead, use use all of that the energy and imagination you're giving to to uh, thinking too much about all the thing, all the regrets, all the things that you wish you were, all the things you would change about yourself. Instead, use that to pour into something that is going to love someone else. Like yeah. write a song about it, not so that you can express yourself, but so that you can snap somebody else out of the spell. You know, that's right. Um, that, that's, I think what I would give. Yeah, that's good, man. Yeah. I love your neighbor through all these things. It's so good. I love in, in the book. I, I had never heard this before and I bet a lot of people will, will resonate with it is the stuff with Bach. How mm. it's so, you know, well known that he had, SDG Soli Deo Gloria at the bottom of his manuscripts, but tell tell us about what Bach has yeah. at the top and and why yeah. why writers need it why we writers need that today. He would write um, uh, JJ or Yesu Yuva J E S U J U V A, which mean which was a prayer for help. It was Jesus help me. So uh, which I think that is in some ways the perfect model of what it is that that if you're a Christian and you're called to do creative work, that's, that's the perfect model. It's like you start the work out by asking for help from the source of all goodness and beauty. Um, you say you, you humble yourself to ask, ask Jesus to come to your aid. And then you do the work, you sit down and you, you write the manuscript and you're scared and you carry all the fears with you and you do all the stuff. 
but you, you, you're obedient to the work. And at the end, when you're finally finished, you, you ascribe the glory to him. Yeah. I love that, man. That was so good. I remember I just wrote in the margins of the book, like, Oh man, I need this. Yeah. You know, as a psalmist, where does my help come from? Um, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and the maker, uh, Uh the maker of heaven and earth. So Lord, help me make, um, you know, help me serve. And that's what we, we need so desperately. Um, well, as we get, you know, as our uh, destination, we're getting closer, the tray tables are coming up and the the seats are being put to the upright (laughs) position. Um, tell us about two, two things, well, three things before we close for sure. But I want to talk about these, the book, you know, the subtitle for adorning the dark is thoughts on community calling and the mystery of making, uh, two of those things for, I mean, the book, obviously in all your songs are the mystery of making, but community and callings, a lot of this stuff gets, you know, it is exemplified in two of your other things that you do with the rabbit room and, and the, uh, Hutchmoot conference. So let, let's talk about those. So tell us about the rabbit room for people that aren't yeah. that familiar with it and, and what it is. Well, the Rabbit Room uh, was uh, is a ministry that um, I started probably twelve years ago um, here in Nashville, and, and it's it's broader than Nashville. But the the idea of it came from uh, it kind of was given birth by this community here. I was in Oxford. Um, I'm kind of a C.S. Lewis Tolkien nerd, and so when I was in Oxford, England, I of course went to the Eagle and Child Pub, yeah. which is one of the places those guys would hang out sometimes. And uh, and they had this group called the Inklings. A lot of us know that that the this group of writers who were Christians who would gather at the pub for a drink and to talk about their stories. And uh, and I remember noticing when I was there, or kind of having the realization when I was there, I was like, this this probably wasn't the stodgy like, you know, chortly Oxford Dawn thing like we imagine. I right. bet it, there was a b- bunch of laughter. I bet that, like, the stories were a byproduct of the friendships, right? Yeah. That the friendships were, like, the thing that were really driving what was going on there. Um, an excuse to hang out with your friends around a table um, under the lordship of Christ, and then the stories kind of grew out of that. Um, and so, I, in a sense, and so and immediately when I was there, I thought about Nashville, and I thought about how, um, there in in a much less brilliant way, <laughs> me and my friends right. w- were um, like I knew that my art had been um, bolstered by my friendship with other writers who were better than me, right? And also the best thing about that bargain was the fact that I had these friends, not the songs. Like the best thing about a, a community of artists is not the art that they're making; it's the community. And so. Uh, when I thought about the Inklings and then I thought about Nashville, I was like, there's, there's some things that were, were, um, without even realizing it, we were emulating about the Inklings, like this pretty regular get togethers, like this group of people who felt, who were Christians, who also felt called to tell stories or to write songs and believed in the power of those things. And so the rabbit room was, I didn't, I didn't, I left this part out. The rabbit room was the name of the room in the pub. That's right. And there was a sign over the door that said the rabbit room. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. So I bought the domain name, started the ministry and, um, which is kind of a flag in the ground to just say, Hey, this is a gathering point for people who are, who care about the gospel, care about scripture, but also feel like one of the ways God tells his story and has always told his story is through, um, artists through people who are writing songs and telling stories and whatever it may be. And so uh, the rabbit room then branched out into a publishing house. We've published about 30 books that we just kind of, you know, maybe the kind of books that you aren't going to find at a typical Christian bookstore, but that we believe ought to exist in the world. And um, 
and then also a gathering like we sell the records of a bunch of singer songwriters once again people you know when i hear people say they don't like christian music yeah. what i i put i push back by saying well you're just listening to the wrong stuff that's right like it's there's way more happening than what you hear on on christian radio so if you don't like christian radio then then come to the rabbit room we can point you to a lot of people who are doing great work who uh that that um i think ought to be heard by people and then we realize that, that the rabbit room talks a lot about community but we we there's no such thing as an online community really community can't be virtual like it 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 requires uh face-to-face interaction and sharing a meal and working side by side with each other and so we were like we can't talk about community in the rabbit room unless we have a chance for people to actually meet each other in person and so we started hutch moot rabbits live in a hutch moot means meeting so hutch moot uh and we're pro this year will be our 10th year of uh hutch moot which there is this conference that um is a three-day it's not a workshop it's a it's a what i i usually describe it as a three-day feast where we celebrate the way the lord speaks through um uh stories and music and and community and meals and that kind of thing so we we talk about everything from rich mullins to c.s lewis to to gardening and um and then share good meals and listen to good music while we're doing it. Yeah, so this is not a time to pitch your books and to to network and try to find a literary agent. This is to come exactly, and enjoy yeah. and uh, and to celebrate. Yeah, and it and it, we we kind of call it a conference for everyone. So it's not just for artists. It's about the arts and and about Christianity and the arts and the intersection, all that kind of stuff. But it's actually a conference where there are just as many moms and you know teachers and accountants and uh, pastors there as there are, you know, storybook illustrators and, and songwriters, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a chance for us all to kind of remember that we're all called to this creative life. Yep. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, you know him, uh, Dan DeWitt. Yeah. Um, Dan and I, I took, took a class with Dan at a uh, Southern seminary on C.S. Lewis and uh-huh. it was just on his writings. We had such a great time and Dan and I became friends outside the class and, and he had told me about uh, the conference. I thought, oh, man, that'd be so much fun to go to. And the last two years, I always wait way too long. I go and look. I'm like, oh, it's sold out. Like, I, oh, I'm, shoot. I'm yeah. not going to make it. But one of these years, <laughs> I'm going to make it up there and, and, and just enjoy it and enjoy. Yeah, you should, you should totally come. And <clears> then, <throat> so the last thing I want to talk about before, uh, before we're done is what I hope, I hope everyone listening already knows about this, um, is the Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, the the musical telling of the whole story of redemption, uh, the Christmas program that isn't your typical Christmas program, uh, going all the way back to eternity past and God's plan to to send His Son uh, to die for us, and then woven all throughout the scriptures. Uh, it's just so well done. But you've got a new version ish, a new re-release of these songs. So so tell us about the the new Behold the Lamb of God coming out. Yeah. So the so the this is the twentieth anniversary of the tour. We um, in 2000 was the very first time we went on the road with this body of songs. Um, it wasn't quite complete yet at that time, but we um, I had this idea to tell tell the story. Of, I was so like geeked out sitting in Bible college as uh, as as a person who like had had this reawakening to who Jesus was through, like I said, the music of Rich Mullins. I ended up found found myself in Bible college and was studying the Bible under the, you know, under these professors and was just kind of amazed by the fact that, uh, it was as beautiful as it was, you know, I was, uh, having grown up with it, it's easy to kind of forget 
how remarkable this book is. And so um, I loved the the fact, especially the Old Testament classes, um, this realization that Jesus was also the main character of the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, it blows <laughs> the, your mind. The, yeah, when you realize how beautifully it all leans toward him and is haunted by him and it's full of such expectation, the fulfillment of this promise through him. And uh, I wanted to write a body of songs that we would sing at Christmas time that would tell that story so that it, so that the birth of Christ as the fulfillment of this promise was was if if you didn't know that already, that this concert would be a moment for you to realize that he was the center of it all. And if you grew up in the church and you did know it, but forgot how amazing it was, we were hoping that this concert would would uh, wake you up to the beauty of the gospel. And so, uh, so the label back in, back then, I was on a, under contract with a, a record deal, and they didn't get it. They didn't really think that it would sell because it was like new Christmas songs. And so they wrote me out of a con out of the contract and, and I released it independently right after they dropped me from the label. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a rocky season in my, in my songwriting career, but, but like the record was released independently and we've since just kind of toured it around for 20 years. And it's been one of the more successful things that I've ever done. Um, but it's never had a proper album release. Like, like most of the America has never heard of this thing. So, the label, my current label, who's wonderful, they were like, why don't we just use this as an excuse to re-record it? It's evolved a little bit over the years. Like, uh, bring some new voices into the room and uh, celebrate what God has done for the last 20 years by by giving it an official launch. Yeah. And so I'm so thankful. Like, it was just... It's like awesome, we man. We, Jess Ray and, and uh, Fernando Ortega and um, Andy Gullihorn, like, like all these familiar voices that are a part of it with a few new voices. And then we tweaked a couple of the arrangements. And so if you know the record already, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Um, but if you don't know it, our hope is that this will be a, a good way for you to remember how good Jesus is. Yeah. I was listening to, to the new record last night and, uh, on my way to my daughter's soccer practice. And she said, what is this? She goes, wait, this is, this is the whole name of God, right? I said, yeah, it is. She said, but it's different. I said, it's a little different. And she yeah. goes, Hey, can you just, let's go to Matthew's begats. Can you fast forward to Matthew's begats? I said, all right, sure. You know, she just loves That's it great. so much. So what man. a gift. I mean, who, who would ever imagined oh, that man. a fifth no. grader would be asking, Hey, can I listen to Matthew's? I want to hear the, <laughs> the, the, the lineage begats. of Christ. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, so funny. Yeah. That's, such a gift. This whole man. thing has been a gift. I like the, the looking back, um, we put together a little documentary that's, uh, about the the whole project that's going to be in like the the deluxe edition of the of the CD that uh, was this great opportunity to like interview all these people who had been a part of it over the years and just I think anytime you spend if you if you have the luxury to sit down and really look at uh, the last twenty year, years of your life um, and you're a Christian like you can't not marvel mm. at God's provision like I just like I just it, it, this whole year has been an opportunity of like looking back and seeing and just being kind of like overwhelmingly grateful that that God has has been faithful, yeah. and so uh, yeah, that's that's what we're celebrating. That's good, man. Uh, yeah, so listeners, definitely go. You want to go get Adorning the Dark as soon as it hits. Uh, this episode's probably releasing the week of the release of Adorning the Dark, so go and pick that up. I know you're going to love it. Um, you'll probably le- read it in the, in a week, just just like I did. And then get Behold the Lamb of God, the re-release, put it on replay, and then go check the, the show notes for links to go see the tour dates, see if there's a, a tour near you, and go check that out. Um, it's such a joy to have you on, Andrew. But before we go, I'm going to do a lightning round, three three questions. Okay. Okay. 
You can so only nervous. Yeah, here we go. You can only listen to one Rich Mullins song for the rest of your life. Which one is it? Oh, wow. It would be either The Color Green or Land of My Sojourn. Okay, Color Green, Land of My Sojourn. I don't even think I know those. Yeah. I have to listen to them. I'm not near the Rich fan that you are. My, oh, my, man. Okay. Mine would be well, Creed, which I had playing on when, when, when I... is marvelous. Yeah, yeah it's that, a one, that one just gets me in, in all the feels every time. Yeah. Um, I just love it. Uh, now you can only read one C.S. Lewis book for the rest of your life. Which one's it going to be? Oh, and, wow. And you can't say that it can't be like a six volume, single volume <laughs> Narnia. Like. I would probably say The Great Divorce. Mm. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I love it. I think if, mine if would not be. not The Great Divorce, what would yours be? I think mine would be Screw Tape. Okay, yeah, that's pretty weird. Right here. Well, you don't yeah. like Screw Tape, or is that too obvious? That's, I love Screwtape. That's too obvious. No, I'm thinking maybe that should be my answer. But I, I, I think I think The Great Divorce. Have you read Till We Have Faces? No. I have it. So th- I think I read so two pages and thought I'm not ready for this one yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the it's it's an uphill climb, but I think it's his best book. That's what I've heard. Yeah, and so when the time comes, get ready because that was that was almost my answer. But okay. but it's it's just it's it's like his. I always describe it as till we have faces is is C.S. Lewis flexing his muscles as a as a writer. Like mm. in case people think that he's only a kid's writer, it's him going, I'm going to actually write some literature here. And it's just mind blowingly good. Yeah, and, man. Uh, there are some yeah. incredible parts in, in the great divorce, like how everyone is so far away from each other in hell and mm-hmm. like in the, the lizard. Oh man, it's escaping me right now. Oh yeah. When yeah. He takes it he's off. He's told and, that he has to take it off his shoulder yeah. and that it's going to, he thinks that he'll die without it, but they're telling him, no, the only way to live is to get rid of the lizard. Yeah. But then it's, it's amazing. It's the part like how pain it was so painful when they were in heaven walking around, like how painful it was to walk. Um, uh-huh. but then on the grass, yeah, yeah, but then they're changed and they're just floating across it. Uh, so much, I think that's in there. I don't know if I'm making it up, but okay. so much good stuff. It's, so, it's great. Good answer. Okay. Last one. Uh, the Popeye's chicken sandwich or the Chick-fil-A sandwich. <laughs> Uh, I have not yet tried the Popeye's chicken sandwich, but I will tell you this, that last week I was, uh, invited to go hang out at Chick-fil-A headquarters. Um, and, uh, I, me, my band and I were in Atlanta and we, we were, we were given such a warm reception, like Bubba Kathy, like is a fan. And so like I was st- in the cafeteria at Chick-fil-A playing, is he worthy for the, oh my <laughs> for the people? And it was just like, we walked out of there just grinning from ear to ear. Yeah. I was like, I was so impressed with like the kindness and hospitality of the, the, uh, the, the ethos of that place was right. just kind of amazing. So I, you know, I went into it a little bit with like some like, okay, is this going to be weird? And I just couldn't, I walked out going, I will eat at Chick-fil-A every day now. Oh, so uh, totally. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go Chick-fil-A. I, I had the, the sandwich recently. Um, uh, the Popeye's one said my wife and I were like, we just gotta, we gotta do it. We just have to. Uh-huh. So we're on yeah. our way back from Florida on vacation. And yeah, we're eating garbage all week on vacation. He said, Hey, we're about to get back and it's going to be salmon and salads all over again. So let's eat one more thing of garbage before we get back and boy it was garbage that's for sure oh really it, wasn't it was good. it first it took 20 minutes to get the sandwich oh and that's, that was that's trouble it was and it, i bet they didn't say my pleasure no they did not it was a lot of huffing and puffing and like snarls that's funny and stuff i will say that the 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 popeyes mashed potatoes with cajun gravy is pretty amazing they're good at what they do yeah, but the other anyway. thing was all marking. But hey, Popeyes, that, Popeyes <laughs> or Chick Fil A does not sponsor this show. But you can, uh, if you would just reach out to me on Twitter, Popeyes or Chick Fil A, I'd be willing to sell you some ad time. 
That's so funny. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. That was a thanks, blast. Man. And uh, as always, everyone, just keep writing. <laughs> <laughs>